Good to see you, Summit Church, at all of our campuses uh, across the Triangle. Every weekend we gather uh, in one of nine different locations across the Triangle, plus a tenth, our brothers uh, in uh, the Wake County Correctional Facility. Uh, we uh, say greetings to all of you. We do that because it is a better and more efficient way we've learned to be able to reach the Triangle. Uh, we also allows us, meeting in different locations, allows us to keep the church more local. And so uh, we do that, but we all gather as one body together, and that's what we do this weekend. I would invite all of you at all of our campuses to take out out your Bible if you have it and open it to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, as you are turning there, if you have ever driven along the Blue Ridge Parkway, you might uh, have seen a little sign um, as, you go, as you go across one point where it says Eastern Continental Divide. That is the line that marks the eastward and westward slopes of our continent. Uh, it, it's uh, raindrops, they say, that fall even an inch to the west of that dividing line will flow westward down toward the Mississippi River. And those that fall just an inch or so to the east will go all the way out to the Atlantic Ocean. There is even one spot in Glacier National Park in Montana called the Triple Divide Peak. I've actually been there once. It's a spot that right from that one spot, water flows to either the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, or the Arctic Ocean. I want you to think about it. You got three little sort of raindrop friends that are falling casually through the sky, just chatting it up. They can literally land one centimeter apart from each other and end up in oceans on opposite sides of the globe. I share that because the passage we're going to work through today shows you the dividing line of eternity. People that are very close, very similar uh, in life situations, who fall on opposite sides of this line are going to end up eternities apart. Um, that's what you see when, you're, when you look into Luke 23. We're going to find the stories of two men whose lives are almost identical in every way, but who fall by their own choice on the opposite side of a line, and they end up in entirely different places. And your life is going to be represented in one of the two of them. Let's take a look at their stories. Chapter 23, verse 32. Verse, well, verse 32, let me jump back to verse 26 real quick. Um, as they led Jesus away, to be crucified. Two others, verse 32, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. By the way, based on the other places that the New Testament uses this word criminals, it's most likely talking about insurrectionists who wanted to throw off the power of Rome. And we're not talking about casual, loving, you know, George Clooney, Ocean's Eleven type of thieves. We're talking about violent, desperate men. Verse 33, when they came to a place that is called the skull, or in Hebrew language, Golgotha, which literally means the skull. Evidently, they say the rock face actually looked like a skull the way the rocks formed in it. It was a very terrifying um, just how it looked. They called it the skull and that's where they did executions. It was there that they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, verse 34, for they know not what they do. This is the dividing line of history and at its pinnacle stands a skull with three crosses on one of which hangs the Son of God himself and on the other two, two criminals. You know, when the president of the United States makes an important speech, he often will include with him in the press conference on the stage that he speaks from, he'll include those who are most important to whatever it is that he's announcing. So if it's something that relates to the military, he'll put other generals up there with him. Uh, if he's talking about uh, what's happening in a community, he'll put local leaders from that community. Um, if it's a, a new policy that he's starting, he'll put people in the group that will benefit from the policy that he's introducing. I want you to think about this. During the defining moment of God's work in human history, he chooses to walk onto stage with two random unnamed criminals 
because that's what his greatest moment was about. These three crosses are a microcosm of human history that tell the entire story of the human race. You're going to see a cross of redemption, you're going to see a cross of rejection, and you're going to see a cross of repentance. First, let's talk for a minute about Jesus's cross, the one in the middle, the cross of redemption. Maybe you wonder how Jesus got on the cross in the first place. I mean, after all, the last time we saw Jesus, he was doing miracles and healing people and everybody seemed to love him. Well, see, Jesus had gotten sideways with both the religious and the secular leaders of his day. The religious leaders were jealous of him because he threatened their authority. The secular leaders thought of him as a nuisance who didn't tremble enough before the almighty power of Rome. The Jewish people were disappointed in him because he hadn't thrown off Roman power the way that they'd hoped, and his disciples were confused by him. So one betrayed him and the others abandoned him. So in a sense, his crucifixion represents the culmination of the collective failure of the human race. His crucifixion was caused by our jealousy, our arrogance, our apathy, our unbelief, and our cowardice. But God, Scripture tells us, had his own purpose in the crucifixion, something that he had been pursuing since the very beginning of human history. You see, from the beginning, God had told his people that he would send a Savior to take their place under the curse of death. It's what we say around here at the Summit Church all the time. You can summarize the gospel in four words. You remember this? What is it, church? Jesus in my place. He told Adam and Eve, God told Adam and Eve that he would send a deliverer who would crush the serpent of death. Genesis 3.15, he said, but that serpent of death is gonna bite the heel of the deliverer. Let me just ask you, think about this for a minute. If a man is in a war with a snake and um, the man steps on the head of the snake and and he crushes the head of the snake, but the very poisonous snake bites his heel, who wins that fight? Well, in a sense, they both lose because the snake is dead, he got his head crushed, but then um, the guy is dead because he got bit by the poisonous snake. Um, He's saying that, yes, there will be a guy who will come who will crush death, but he's actually going to be bitten by death and die from it. From that point on in the Bible, he's gonna give picture after picture of this throughout almost every page of the Old Testament. It's what we spent a year talking about. Um, For example, after destroying, destroying the world through a global flood in Noah's day, he sets a gigantic bow in the sky, a rainbow, that's a promise that God will never again destroy the earth in that way. But the way the author writes that is he, he uses the word war bow, like a bow and arrow, and it's you know put in the sky this way, which means that it's no longer pointed down toward earth. It's pointed back up into heaven. It's a promise that God would absorb the arrow of his judgment, the death sentence into himself, rather than firing that arrow down into us. When Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac at God's command, right before he, he took Isaac's life, God said, stop and points him to a lamb that had been caught in the bushes just, uh, just off to the right so that that, that lamb could be sacrificed in Isaac's place and Isaac the son could go free. The entire sacrificial system was built on the concept of an innocent substitute taking the place of the guilty. So every year in Israel, each believing family would bring one lamb, a perfect unblemished lamb to the temple where they would offer it in sacrifice and the father of that family would carry it up to the altar and he'd lay it down on the altar and um, he would lay his hand on the head of that that lamb would begin to confess the sins of that family. And while he confessed their sins, the priest would take the knife and slit the throat of the lamb, um, showing that this lamb, this innocent lamb, was dying in the place of, of that family. Isaiah the prophet said that one day God would send his servant to be the lamb who suffered for the sins of the world, and that that servant would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that purchased our peace was gonna be put on him, and by his stripes we would be healed. 
when John the Baptist saw Isaiah, he cried out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the head of Jesus is going to be laid the, uh, on the head of Jesus is going to be laid the sins of the entire human race. That's what's happening here at the cross. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, all the prophets, all the prophets foresaw that on the cross, Jesus became the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you're going to become Peter the denier. You're going to become Paul the persecutor, the blasphemer and the cruel oppressor. You're going to become David that adulterer. You will become Adam that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. You're going to become the husband who has neglected or abused his family. You're going to become the immoral woman who has destroyed not only her life through her actions, but seemingly everybody she comes into contact with. You're going to become the drug addict. You're going to become the teenage girl lying to her parents. You're going to become the hypocrite living a double life. You're going to become the proud, the selfish, and the apathetic. He did more than come as a religious leader to teach us um, how we ought to live. He took the place of those of us who had lived opposite of how God wanted us to live. On the cross, he became our sin so that from the cross, he could forgive our sin. So that from the cross, he could look out at those who had rejected and failed him and pray what he did there in verse 34, Father, forgive them. He could extend forgiveness to them because he was being punished for them. I don't have a lot of great analogies for you, but there's one I use with my kids. I've given it to you before. If you're a parent, I would encourage you to use something like this with your kids. We talk about the cross and I, I tell a story that I heard Many years ago, I heard it as a true story. Whether or not it's true, I can't you know, verify, but supposedly it took place back in a, a Viking country many, many years ago, a thousand years ago. There was a king who um, in his small little country uh, had the reputation of being the fairest king that lived on the earth and the most loving king. Uh, the people adored him because he was so fair and so loving. The king came out to address his nation one day and said, um, someone is, is stealing money from my treasury. The king said, you know that I've promised to take care of you. Those of you that are poor, I, I help. I sometimes bring them into my own house. He said, but you can't steal money from me because I'm the ruler and I've got to take care of the country. And so he said, whoever gets caught stealing from the king will get the punishment of, of 10 lashes with a whip, how they um, gave punishments out in those days. And so um, a couple uh, week or so passes by and he comes back out a second time and he said, money continues to be stolen on a regular basis. He said, we're going to have to double this penalty from 10 lashes to, to 20 lashes. Another week goes by, money being stolen every day. So he comes out a, a third time and says, we're going to double this from 20 lashes to 40 lashes, which was in essence the, the death penalty. Um, two days after the king made this final proclamation, they caught the thief red-handed. It was the king's mother. Now at that point, I always look at my kids and I say, so what's this king going to do? It's always fun to hear my kids kind of, you know, like begin to argue about it. And um, one of the uh, kids is like, well, um, he, he'd have to, he has to give her the punishment because I mean, if it was anybody else, he'd punish them. And so it's not fair if he just lets her off because it's his mom, that's not fair at all. And then one of my other kids would be like, yeah, but you know, he can't, he can't hurt his mom. That's his parent. You know, I'm like, that's a really, I like that you think that, but um, you know, it's how do you resolve that dilemma? He's the most fair and the most loving. Well, according to the story, the king retires into his chambers and asks for some time to think about it, comes out a day later and says, you got to give her the punishment. The law is the law. The law does not make exceptions. If 
I can't make an exception just because she's my mom. And so they take her to the place where they gave the whippings and they tied her up and they tore off the back of her shirt and the, um, the guard uh, takes the whip and he pulls it back and he's about to bring the first of these 40 lashes across the back of his mom. And the king said, says, stop. And the king walks over to his mom. Everybody thinks this to say goodbye, but he, he embraces her. But instead of letting go after he hugs her, he just holds on. And then he looks at the guard and says, now I want you to hit her. And the guard says, I can't hit her. You're right in the way. If I try to hit her, I'll hit you. And the king said, I gave you a command and that command is to hit her. And so the guard tries to hit the mom, but instead of hitting the mom, he hits all 40 times. He hits the king instead of his mom. Now, again, whether or not that story is true, I don't know, but I know that what it illustrates is 100% true that what God did at the cross is he took the place so that he would fulfill the law that was against us, that the soul that sins shall die, and that he did it in a way that he could save us and he could bring us to heaven with him. That is why we say the gospel is Jesus in my place. I realize this can be a little hard to grasp, but think of it this way. When you forgive somebody, when you forgive somebody, you agree to absorb the consequences for their action into yourself. That's what forgiveness is. For example, say somebody lies about you and destroys your business. Their lies cause financial harm to you. What are your options at that point? Well, you could prosecute them. And in prosecuting, you could take away their business or take money back away from them. Uh, you could go out and you know, get back at them by exposing them and telling everybody what a liar they are and ruining their reputation. But if you choose to forgive, then what you are saying is, I'm going to let the sting of that person's sin end in me. And I'm not going to retaliate and I'm not going to even the score. I'm not going to put the sting back into them. I'm going to absorb the sting of suffering for their sin. What God did on the cross was exactly that. He refused to give the sting of death into us and he took it into himself. He suffered so that we didn't have to. So do you understand what is the gospel? Four words. Jesus, say it with me, Jesus in my place. That's why we say Jesus did not just die for you. Jesus died instead of you. He took your place. Now we turn to the other two crosses on either side of him, bearing the two criminals, because they're going to demonstrate for us the division, the dividing line of the entire human race. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him. Do not fear God. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Verse 43, and Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, first, let's talk about what these two guys have in common. First, they're both equally bad. It doesn't say that one of them was worse than the other, that one was a varsity level center and one was a JV level. They're both equally bad. They're both under the sentence of death. In fact, gospel, uh, Matthew's account, the gospel of Matthew tells us that both of these criminals started out, um, both of them mocking Jesus, not just the one. We know that both of them are minutes away from dying. We know that both criminals would have been happy for Jesus to have delivered them from death. Verse 39, even the one that ultimately rejects Jesus says, hey, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself and us. That's partially a taunt and partially sincere. He would have loved for Jesus to have come down off the cross, smitten the Romans, delivered them, and led an insurrection against Rome. 
right? So both of them want Jesus to deliver them, but one thief began to understand some things, things that are necessary for a true conversion. And understanding these three things I'm gonna give you is the dividing line of the human race. Here it is, right? And be very careful about these. Number one, he knew the difference, this repentant thief, in seeking help from God and seeking God for himself. He knew the difference in seeking help from God and seeking God for himself. Do you see how verse 40, the repentant thief doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross? Look at it. Look at verse 40. He doesn't ask to be taken down from the cross. I'm sure, y'all, he would have been happy if Jesus had offered that. If he'd have been like, hey, you know what? I'm going to take you down from the cross and you're not going to die today. I'm sure he would have been overjoyed. But when he called out on Jesus for help, he doesn't mention being taken down off the cross. All he says is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because the thief realizes, listen, that what he needs is not a change in circumstance. What he needs is a change in what his life has been centered upon. So instead of asking God for the life he wants, he wants to make God his life. Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference in seeking God to give you the life you want and wanting God to become your life? It's the difference between loving God for himself and finding God as a useful means to some other end. John Piper says that many people, for example, relate to God like a tire iron. Tire irons are a really useful instrument. Very helpful in a pinch, right? But nobody really loves a tire iron. Nobody brags about their tire iron. Nobody displays their tire iron proudly. Nobody says, hey, you got to come over and look at my tire iron. Right? You hide it in the trunk. You wouldn't want to be caught without it, but you don't love it. Your tire iron is useful for taking care of what you really care about. And what do you really care about? Your car. Your car. That's how many of us, Piper say, says, see God. God is useful for some end we need him for. He gives us peace in life. He gives us a stable family. He helps us in our marriage. He's going to take us to heaven when we die. But he's not beautiful in and of himself to us, so we seek him as a means to an end. God is useful for getting the life that we want, but we don't want God to be our life. Which of those two better describes how you seek God? Do you find him useful or do you find him beautiful? Is God merely the best means to the life you want or do you want God to be your life? In the same way, there's a big difference in trying to appease God and really loving him. And we all know an illustration of like a, a man who, who is, mistreats his wife and neglects her. And after many years of putting up with this, she just says, I'm leaving. And so he suddenly panics and he starts to make all these changes and he agrees to go to counseling with her and he starts to go to church with her. I mean, we've seen this story actually several times here at the Summit Church and, and he, he starts to make all these changes. But um, after a while, after he's out of danger, he ends up going back to his old ways because when the danger's gone and he doesn't think she's going to leave, he's never really corrected the core problem in his heart, and that is he doesn't give his wife the place in his heart that she deserves. In the same way, our repentance has to be a genuine change of heart toward God, not merely an attempt to appease God. Many people wonder about deathbed conversions. You heard, you heard of that? They're like, well, can somebody live an evil life and never do anything good or think about God at all? And then in the moment right before they die, repent to God and go to heaven? I mean, the answer from this story is yes. Thank God, yes. This story shows you that. But it also shows you, listen, it has to be true repentance. It can't be, God, give me my get out of hell free card without a change of heart that says, God, up until now, 
I've centered my whole life on everything but you, and that changes from this moment forward. Whether I got five minutes left for 50 years, I'm not just trying to make a deal with you so that I can use you to get to heaven. I want you to become the center of my life. And the fact that this guy didn't ask to be delivered from the cross, but did ask Jesus to remember his soul shows you that that change had happened in him. Here's my question for you. Have you truly repented? Why do you want Jesus in your life? Why do you want him? Is it because you think it'll give you a better marriage? Is he gonna get you out of a jam? Is it it because you think he can heal you or prosper you? Is it because you think he'll take you to heaven? Or do you want him for him? Even if it means that you, for the time being, have to stay on the cross of bad health or a bad marriage or an unhappy home or tough circumstances in your job. Listen, you have got to get more serious about your soul than you are your skin. Because ultimately what salvation is about is not changing the circumstance of your life. It's about reconnecting you and restoring you to God regardless of the circumstance of your life. Have you truly repented before God or have you just tried to arrange a deal with God? Before I go on to number two, let me give you a handful of signs that you've never really repented. Right? Here's one, letter A if you're taking notes. You got areas of compromise before God. Some of you have believed this lie that you can accept Jesus as Savior and not surrender to him as Lord. I heard that when I was a kid. Oh, you can accept Jesus as Savior now, and then, and then you know, I mean, one day you might really, you know, res- surrender. That's, that Bible never makes that division. Imagine that, you know, you got married. Say you're a girl and you get married. And, you know, um, as soon as the reception's done, uh, you, you grab your keys and you're heading for the door, and your new husband's like, where are you going? And you're like, I'm going to go spend the night with my old boyfriend. Right? That's not a marriage at all. People who accept Jesus as Savior but not Lord are attempting to, to do the same thing. They're like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be you're reunited with you, but, you know, I, I'm not really, you, if he is not your Lord, he's not your Savior. There's letter B. You don't have a growing relationship with him. You don't spend daily time with him reading his word and praying. I mean, after all, if he's the center of your life, you'll talk with him constantly and you'll study his word. If he really is the center of your life, I mean, if your relationship with Jesus consists of coming in here and hearing a pep talk from me every week, and then you going throughout the week trying to be a fairly moral person, but you never really talk to Jesus beyond that, you have no relationship with him. Any more than I would have a marriage to my wife, Veronica, if all I did was get together with a friend and talk about her once a week. That was it. We come together, my friend and I, we talk about how awesome Veronica is. We even sing some songs about Veronica. And then we come back next week and do the same thing. That's not a relationship. What makes me married, what makes my marriage a relationship is not that I talk about it with somebody else, but that I commune with her throughout the week. Here's another, uh, you aren't involved in things like small groups or Bible studies that are growing your relationship with him. That shows that you've never really made him the center of your life. Here's letter C, you're not actively involved in his mission. Your attendance in church is sporadic and you stay on the sidelines. How can you say he's the center of your life if you're not living out his will for your life, doing the things in ministry he's told you to do. Those things might indicate that you're trying to use God rather than really love him. Let me get back to this repentant thief and I'll show you what else is true about him. First thing is, like I said, he knew the difference in seeking help from God and seeking God for himself. Number two, he understood his guilt before God. He understood his guilt before God. Tim Keller, who stood right here on the stage just a couple days ago, um, Tim Keller says that this second thief says something that is impossible to admit without God's help. 
verse 41. He looks at this other criminal and he says, we are punished justly getting what our deeds deserved. Like I told you at the beginning, the word that the other gospels use for these two guys is leste. Leste, which means something more like insurrectionist. These were guerrilla fighters. They were freedom fighters. There is no way a guy who has been a freedom fighter is going to say that he is being fairly and justly put to death by Rome. He believed he was fighting for justice. He believed his cause was just. So when he says we are getting what we deserve, what is he talking about? He's not talking primarily about Rome's punishment of him on the cross. What he's saying is we deserve to be abandoned by God to be punished for our sins. We deserve before God to die. You see, repentance recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God. King David committed what had to be one of the most egregious public sins in history. He sleeps with a woman who is not his wife, who happens to be married to one of his best friends, who is also his right-hand man-at-arms. So after his inability to cover up this pregnancy that she has because of them sleeping together, um, he arranges for his best friend to be killed, and then he lies about it and covers it up for an entire year in front of Israel. When God, after a year, finally brings him to repentance, David writes a psalm recording his repentance, Psalm 51, and right at the beginning of that psalm, David says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. How could he say that? I mean, I imagine when he said that, that somewhere in heaven, Uriah was like, ah, uh, I feel like you sinned against me too. And I thought Bathsheba said, yeah, you sinned against me. And the baby that died because of, of that, I felt like that baby said, you sinned against me. And I felt like the entire nation of Israel said, you also sinned against us. How could he say against you and you only have I sinned? It's not because he didn't recognize the wrong he'd done to others or that he needed to repay them. It's because God was so big in his heart that this was the most important one he sinned against. Is that how you feel about your sin? You see, repentance has to be first vertical before it's horizontal. There's a difference between feeling remorse for the mess that sin has made of your life and feeling actual repentance toward God because of it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that there's actually two kinds of sorrow for sin. This is very important to understand because a lot of times we think any sorrow is good sorrow. And anytime there are tears in church, oh, that's got to be a sign that God's working in their life. Paul says not at all. He says a lot of people weep over sin. They weep over regret, the shame that it brings on them, the harm they've caused somebody else. He said that's a worldly sorrow that ultimately will not lead anywhere. He says godly sorrow is directed toward God. And godly sorrow is not measured by the amount of tears that flow out of your eyes. It's measured by the change that happens in your heart. That sadness that you feel about your sin, is it because of what your sin has done to others? Is it because of what your sin has done to you? Is it because of the mess you've made? Or is it because you actually understand your responsibility to God, that he is the main one you sinned against? He was your creator. He's the one that filled your life with goodness. He's the father you spurned and who you pushed out of your life. You see, as long as you think only about the horizontal dimensions of your sin, I hurt my wife, I, I embarrassed myself, I failed my kids, you'll never really change. This thief recognized first and foremost his relationship with God that he had spurned and, and torn apart. Have you repented toward God because of your sin? Here's the third thing we see about him. He boldly dared upon Jesus' grace. You know, when you think about it, what this thief asked is crazy, right? I mean, think about it. I know that you're the perfect Lord from heaven. 
But whenever you get to wherever you're going, into whatever reward you're coming into, would you stop and remember a guy you met for about 15 minutes who was being executed because of treason and murder and who had done nothing worthy in his life? That is a crazy request. The only thing crazier than the request is that Jesus grants it. Why would Jesus do that? What did Jesus have to gain from granting this request? This guy's never going to do anything useful for Jesus. This guy can't help the cause. He's never going to give his testimony to a single person. He's never going to go on a mission trip. He's never going to contribute a single dollar to the church. This guy's got nothing to offer Jesus. He's got a few minutes to live. That's it. Yet Jesus grants the request. Why? Because God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, grace is what you show when you really love somebody. Here we see the father in Jesus's parable of the prodigal son welcoming home his lost son. He's not evaluating what his son's gonna be able to do for him. He's not evaluating what it's gonna cost to bring him back. He's just so in love with his lost son that all he thinks about is the joy of having him back. I'm telling you, just watching this interaction, I feel like I gotta take off my shoes. This is holy ground, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is somehow greater than all my sin. You may not have anything else. You may have spoiled your entire life away. You may have nothing left to offer to God, but you still have the ability to reach out to him. You have the ability to call out to mer- for mercy to him. And that you find is enough. Now verse 43, look specifically at what Jesus says in response. Because there are some really important things you can learn there too. Jesus' response is one line, today. Today you will be with me in paradise. The key point of emphasis in Jesus' statement is the phrase, with me. Because the essence of salvation, you see, is being united with Jesus. Write this down. Christian conversion is not a change of circumstance. Life doesn't suddenly become better. The guy stayed on the cross. Christian conversion is not a change of circumstance. It's not even primarily a change of behavior. You don't immediately become a perfect person. It's a change of status. It is a change of position. You are now identified with Christ. Some of our staff team, our pastors and our elders have been memorizing um, in the recent weeks certain parts of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.6, Paul describes salvation this way. I love this verse. Watch this. You've read this and probably read right over top of this, but it's really strange. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. Now, I know it's not English class, but what tense is that verb in? Past tense. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Shouldn't it be will be seated? Like one day I'll be seated with him in the heavenly places? No, no. According to this verse, we are already positionally seated in the heavenly places because salvation is a position change. That's what conversion is. He took our sin. We got his position before the father. It's as sure as if it's mine as if I were already seated there. I'm already seated in the heavenly places. I mean, I'm literally at the right hand of God with him. So Jesus says to this thief, as of right now, you're with me. 
from this point on, whether living or dying, you're going to be identified with me. And what I have belongs to you. So today, when you die, you're going to have as much access to paradise as I do. Y'all, would you get this concept that conversion is essentially Jesus giving his identity to you as your own? A few radical changes are going to happen in your life without you trying to even make them happen. It just happens. In fact, I would say these almost serve as tests for whether you've really understood salvation. Here's the first one, letter A. You'll be assured of your salvation. You'll, you'll get assured of it. There's no more, I hope I can make it. I hope I've been good enough. I hope he grades on the curve. You realize that you're as sure of heaven as Jesus is. John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim Progress, said for years he struggled with doubting his salvation because he always wondered, like, have I felt sorry enough about my sin? Have I prayed enough? Do I understand enough about the Bible? He talks about a vision he had. He said, one day I was walking through this field and I looked up into heaven, it seemed. And he said, there I, it was like I saw God the Father and Jesus, my salvation seated at his right hand. And I knew that as long as Jesus, my salvation was seated there, that I was assured of my position before the Father, that my salvation was in heaven. It, wasn't, it was no longer resting upon me as something I had to earn. It was in heaven already, and I was seated there with him. It was waiting for me. He said, when I realized that, it was like this burden, this backpack just fell off of my shoulders. As long as Jesus is seated there because his position became mine, I cannot be lost. 1 John 2, 1, John says, he says, we, are, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Um, advocate, all it means is lawyer. That's the word they would use back then, a lawyer. Um, whenever I read that verse, here's what I always thought it meant. This is like me in high school. I always pictured Jesus as my advocate before the Father, and the conversation would go like this. They'd pull out a big case file marked Greer, and it would have all the stuff that I'd done wrong that week. And, you know, they, Jesus would lay it down, and he'd be like, okay, I got Greer's case file. It's been a rough week. Father, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, it's not been pretty. And they start going through it. He's like, yeah, he did this again. And all oh, this is wrong. And this one, I know this file's back in here. It's been here a hundred times, but we're going to put it back in there. And uh, you know, all this stuff. And he'd lay it all out there. And then Jesus, my advocate would say, but, but, but dad, I want you to go easy on him. I want you to go easy on him because, you know, he's a good kid. He's trying his, his best. And uh, I, I tell you what, don't, don't unleash the wrath on him. Just uh, give him one more chance. Have mercy on him. Do it for me, dad, because, you know, I went to whole, the whole went to earth thing. And, you know, so you owe me, so do it. For, that's what I, how I thought the conversation went. Um, until I read the three or four verses right before 1 John 2, 1. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and, you know this word? What word is it? Just not merciful. It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful to forgive our sins. He's faithful. Just means he couldn't do anything else and still be righteous. Here's how that works. When the subject of J.D. Greer comes up before the Father, Jesus Christ says, there ain't no file. There ain't no file that's got anything about him because everything that he's ever done was put upon me and it would be unjust for the Father to bring back up a sin I'd committed because it would be unjust for God to punish the same sin twice. And if God has put on Jesus the penalty for all my sin, it would literally be unjust for him to hold me accountable for it. So Jesus at the right hand of God does not plead for mercy, he pleads for justice. You see, when you understand that, you become assured of salvation because no longer is it resting upon you. You say, well, okay, so I know he's seated there, but how do I know that he belongs to me? The easy answer is because I've claimed him. I've put my hand on the head of that lamb. 
If you place your hand on the head of Jesus and say, that's my sin bearer, Jesus will never move it off. If you're like, well, I'm still a little unclear on that. I wrote a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, okay? And I would never use a church service to promote a book because every time you promote a book like that, an angel loses his wings and a puppy dies in heaven. So I would not do that, but I would just say that I don't make any money off the book when we sell it here, so you get a copy of that. If you can't afford it, I'll give it to you because it'll help you answer that question. Those who cannot answer the question of whether they know for sure they are saved quite often are not saved because they don't understand salvation. They still think that whether they go to heaven is at least partially based on them. So when you say, are you sure you're going to heaven? They'll be like, this is the number one answer I get, by the way, from people inside the church. Well, I'm like 95%. I think I am. I'm trying my best, pastor. I'm reading my Bible. I'm asking for forgiveness. You still think it's all about you. It's not about you. It's about him. It is finished. The one work that needed to be done has been done. And it's offered to you as a gift if you will receive it. You are saved by works, just not your works. It's saved by his work that you receive as a gift. And see, when that happens, letter B, you'll lose your fear of death. Can can you imagine how this thief's outlook on life changed in that moment? Up until that moment, this had represented the end of everything for him. Now this is simply the gateway into a new existence. existence. You know, listen, I don't want to die. I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to leave my wife. I don't want to leave you, but I'm not afraid because I know that whenever that happens, before the coroner officially pronounces me dead, I will be in the presence of Jesus who will welcome me into heaven, which means that I'm not afraid of it. I mean, if I die prematurely, if I die in the next few years, listen, I want y'all have a funeral, have a big one. None of this little stuff, in fact, not even in this room, just like rent out, I don't know, the RBC Center or something and bring in lots of, I want Kami to sing at my funeral and Molly, and I want you to like, like use it evangelistically, uh, get Nick Cage to do part of the eulogy, uh, make it a big deal, okay? Um, I mean, and, and cry, I'll cry. I mean, I did, that would make me feel good in heaven if y'all are crying and missing me, but don't cry for me, right? We, we can cry for those that we leave behind, but I'm not afraid of death because... In Jesus, it's nothing but a gateway into this very afternoon, I'll be in paradise. When you get that, letter C, you'll gain a new confidence in life. You'll, when, when you get that, you're gonna gain a new confidence in life. I know this thief doesn't have long to live, but can't you imagine that he quit caring about all the people around him? I mean, who cares if all the people around me are taunting me or the religious leaders are condemning me? This king, the real king, the one who has... Who, who paradise in front of him. That king is for me. The one whose kingdom makes this one look like trash. And I'm with him. When you embrace your position in Christ, criticism quits bothering you as much. You want to know, you want to know how you've really embraced your identity in Christ? Criticism doesn't really bother you like it used to. Here's how I think about it. Um, say you're a billionaire. I mean like a legitimate full-on multi-billionaire. And um, you, uh, let's say you're, you're in a taxi cab and you get out and you're gonna pay the driver and it's $20 and you pull out a 20 and as you're pulling it out, a $10 bill, you know, blows in the wind and starts blowing down the street and it blows across the street and you can't go get it because you know, you, you would you, you die trying to get across the street. Are you gonna be depressed for the rest of the day because you lost that $10? Are you going to be like upset for the rest of your life because you lost $10? Of course not, you're a billionaire, what's $10? Let me ask you, are you a Christian? Do you toss and turn at night because somebody snubbed you? You're like a billionaire on their knees looking for that $10 bill. When you've got Jesus, the king, and his 
love and support of you. What's the matter with you if you're worried about a $10 criticism? When you know who you are in Christ, whether or not you succeed in life becomes less important to you. Who cares if I make it big? Who cares if anybody knows my name or thinks of me as a success? Who cares if I make lots of money? I got his approval and I got a stake in his never ending kingdom. When you become a Christian, what happens is you positionally change so that what's in Christ becomes yours. It's what we often compare it to um, marriage. All analogies break down. This one breaks down as well. But um, it's like when I got married. When I got married to Veronica, July 28th, 2000. Up until this point, she had been Veronica Marie McPeters. That was her name. And on the greatest day of her life, she became Veronica Marie Greer. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. She wasn't like a poor beggar and I wasn't like a rich millionaire. But let's just pretend that were true. Let's just pretend that on that day, she becomes a Greer and all the millions and millions of dollars that I have suddenly become hers. If later that week, she's worried because she didn't think we can pay the bill because up until now, she's never had the money to do anything. At some point, I'm gonna look at her and say, hey, you took my name. And with my name came all this stuff. You don't have to live in this reality. You've got to live in this reality. When you become a Christian, you positionally take Jesus's place. And suddenly this thief looks up and he's assured of heaven. He's not afraid of death. And he's no longer dependent on the praise of others or success in life to feel meaningful. That's what it means to become a Christian. Have you? You see, here at the cross, we see a microcosm of the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of humanity. Each of us is going to be one of these two criminals, and we're going to share in the destination of one of these two. These two look identical in life, but right now as we speak, one of them is in heaven with Jesus. Maybe he's listening to this message. I don't know, but the other one right now is in hell, and it all goes back to what they did with Jesus. You see, like these two thieves, we're guilty. Like them, we're dying. We may not be hanging on a cross just a few hours from death, But death is as certain for us as it was for them. Like this thief, we cannot possibly hope to earn God's salvation. Like this thief, we really got nothing to offer to God. I mean, you might not only have a, a few, you may have a few days longer to live than he does, but what you have is just as worthless to offer to God as what he had. <coughs> and just like with these two thieves, he's right there. In fact, he's right there looking at you if you'll choose him. Now you got to seek him, not as a means to to change in circumstance in life, not as an end to something else. You got to seek him for him, but he's right there. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You got to choose him. He's there, but he won't force himself on you. One of my professors in college, I didn't go to a a Bible college, but um, one of my professors in college was a Christian. He was an African-American gentleman who had spent the first few years of his adult life in prison for several armed robberies. He told me that for three months after he got released, every night he would lay in bed considering whether or not to go back to his old lifestyle. He couldn't get a job. He was a convict, an ex-convict. He, hadn't, he wasn't married. He hadn't, just felt like he had nothing to live for. And every night he would think, should I go knock off another convenience store? Maybe this is the only way I can make it. He said, I finally got a job at a hotel making minimum wage. He said, I was barely making ends meet. And late one night, I got assigned to go clean up a bathroom that was covered in the vomit of what he said looked like had to be 15 people. He said, the walls were covered. It was an inch thick on the floor. He said, I was furious. 
I'm down there on my hands and my knees and there's this voice inside of me telling me the only reason they're having you do this is because you're an ex-convict. You're never going to get any respect in life. Then he thought, he said, no. He said, it's because I'm black. I've never been given a fair shake because of that. And I'll always be thought of as second class. This professor said, as I stood there just fuming with bitterness, cleaning up that vomit, the spirit of God came upon me. And made me realize that in this moment, I had a choice. I could keep making excuses and go back to my old lifestyle, or I could repent of my sin and give myself to God. He said, somewhere in the middle of cleaning up somebody else's vomit, my life forever changed. God broke me. I admitted that, yes, while I had certainly faced discrimination in my life, I deserved what I had received. I knew God had better for me. And I say, he said, here's what he said. I quote, I was arrested by the Holy Spirit that night, and my soul was set free. On my knees in someone else's vomit, I was broken and then put back together. God released me from my captivity to sin, and I stood up freed to serve and live for a new master. We got people like that here this week. We have people who need to make that same decision. You might not be a recognized criminal, but you and I are under the same condemnation of death for your sin. Ultimately, you're dying and you will face judgment, but he's here. He's ready to save you. And if you simply turn to him and you say, Lord, remember me, remember me, I surrender to you. I repent of my sins and I trust you as my savior. He will save you. Why don't you bow your heads at all of our campuses, bow your heads. I told you last week, we are a hospital for the broken, not a spa for the saved, which means every week we have people like this come in here. I don't know what circumstance you're in, but I know that some of you, this is the decision that's in front of you. Are you willing to own your sin as yours? Are you willing to repent of it? And are you willing to trust Christ as your savior? Have you received him? It's a personal choice you have to make. You don't get it because your parents were Christians. You don't get it because you come to church. It has to be a personal decision like this thief made to trust Christ as your savior. If you never have, you can do it right now at this very moment. You can pray to God something like this. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I believe you took my place. I receive you as my savior. Say it to him, I receive you as my savior. I surrender to you as my Lord. Right now. With every head bowed, let me ask you a question. I know I can't see everybody at all nine campuses. I know that. But if you right now prayed that prayer, either for the first time or for the first time that you feel like you understood it, at our campuses, could you just lift your hand up I know I can't see everybody. Would you just hold it up? Because I want you to acknowledge it between you and God. I see you. Put it up and hold it up for just a second. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised right now. I pray. God, I know that you are hearing their cry and you are saving them. But I pray that you would establish yourself at the center of their life and that everything from this point on would look forward. Give them the courage to tell somebody. Give them the courage to to act on this and, and do what comes next. We pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.